0: And welcome to The Bus Stop. This is the official podcast of the National School Transportation Association. I am Kurt Mackison and the Executive Director of NSTA. And then this week in our membership update, I want to remind everyone about the NSTA Midwinter Meeting Light. That's going to be held February 21st through the 23rd it's in beautiful Safety Harbor, Florida, which is right off of Old Tampa Bay. Registration information is available. You can go to www.yellowbuses.org. Look for the meetings navigation bar, and I'll take you right to the midwinter meeting where you can register to attend. And we have a great list of sponsors already for the event. Thomas Built Buses, IC Bus, Bluebird Corporation, Tyler Technologies, Keystone Insurers Group, Zonar, National Interstate Insurance Company, PA Post, Hib Group, R.C. Kelly, and TransFinder are all sponsoring the event. So it's going to be a great time. February 21st through 23rd, Safety Harbor, Florida. Now at the bus stop, we have a new guest. He's Dennis Roche, president of Burbio. Dennis, welcome to NSTA The Bus Stop.
1: Thank you. Look forward to the conversation.
0: Great. Now you're probably aware that you're a new phrase for many of our listeners. So probably best if you told us a little bit about the company and give us some background.
1: So Burbio is a six-year-old company and we're a data service for school and community events. We actually pull in over 200,000 school, government, library, and community calendars from all 50 states, all 3,000 U.S. counties, and we keep them up to date. Pre-COVID, we distribute and we still, even in the COVID era, we distribute our information through places like Microsoft that use it in Office three sixty five, where a user can sync their school calendar using our information, as well as local broadcasters and real estate firms. So we were sort of a think of us as like an active weather, but for community and school events. That's what we were when COVID hit. When COVID hit, the lights went out, all the events <laughs> went dark temporarily. And we actually found that our information in certain places became more interesting in value because of the uncertainty. So we built a couple of different products, one of which we'll talk about in a moment, tracking school openings and community groups for companies and investors because it's just so hard to figure out what's going on with COVID.
0: No, you're you're so right in that. And I know you know I get the weekly updates. You guys have been tracking the various cohorts of K to 12 learning. Over the course of the pandemic, um, you talked a, a little bit about how that started. I guess the the, the question is, how, how do you go about acquiring that information and consolidating it for the public?
1: So we built the service over the summer. And we, because of our heritage as a company, there were some things that we were too dumb to try that wouldn't have worked. And there were things that we actually knew that people in the industry may not have thought about. So we have 80,000 school calendars on our database, but as many of your listeners know, the school calendars don't always say whether schools are virtual or in-person. And that drives a lot of economic decision-making. So we were trying to talk to a lot of companies, some of them like who are listeners on this. Try, they're trying to figure it out because it affects their business so much. So we knew we couldn't rely on our massive database of school calendars. We also knew that it was such chaos in the spring that if we had sent out emails or surveys, First of all, getting response to schools to figure out what's going on. The schools, it would have been uh, a slow to respond and or inaccurate almost within days of sending it. So what we did is we decided to set up an audit. So we have a team of people. We actually have a team of five people that full time, all the time, are checking districts across America to see what their learning plans are. We don't ask. We look. And there's announcements on school websites, Facebook groups, local media, Uh, local media resources, and we distribute the districts we look at. There's about 1,200 of them across all 50 states, including the top 200 districts. And we sample them and we audit them proactively, and then we can distribute the information to be able to make approximations about what's going on in different parts of the country. We'll talk in a minute that it's very different in different parts of the country. We look at big districts, but we also look at small districts, which is important because small districts tend to behave differently than big districts and there's also a lot of similarity in different parts of the country between what different districts are playing, uh, districts are doing in this area.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly, you know, useful information that that you provide. So, so let's let's dive into a little bit of the, the data, if you will. What's the recent trending shown as far as K to twelve learning? So I would
1: say that there's, it, it's K to twelve learning is is delivered in three different ways. Uh, traditional in-person every day, which is what would normally happen on one end. On the other end, you've got complete virtual, which is students are not invited into the classroom at all. And then you have what are called hybrid, which is two to three days a week. In some districts, the entire K-12 goes two to three days a week. In some districts, it's only some. In some districts, you have K-5 to five going every day and six through eight or six through 12 not going in at all. So it's a bit of a variation in that hybrid category. What we're seeing is very distinctive regional differences between the approaches. So, in the Sun Belt, which for the purpose of this discussion, we would call it South Carolina down to Florida and over to Arizona, skipping New Mexico, which is virtual, in that part of the (laughs) country, as well as into the Rockies, you've got a lot of in person. State like Florida, almost every school district offers in person every day to students, similar in places like Arkansas um and texas and then uh in places in those states where there's not in person in general there is hybrid a a bit of an exception is in a place like georgia you've got atlanta which is virtual um tennessee which i'll talk about a little more in a moment is is what it was 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 heavily in person in the in the fall and then is Nashville has never been in person. So, some of the big cities are a bit different within that segment, but that's the first part of the country. And it's very, they're very committed to in person learning. They know how to do it. The second is the other extreme is the West Coast, which is Florida, which is Oregon, Washington, California, New Mexico, Nevada, as well as the Mid Atlantic, which is Maryland and Virginia, as well as many big cities. They've never been in person. We refer to them as hard virtuals. They have never brought kids in the classroom. There are small pockets of those, those areas that have had it. But in general, they're not in person, uh, and they haven't figured out how to do it yet. And then in the, in the messy middle, you have the Midwest and the Northeast, which has a lot of hybrid. It's almost exclusively hybrid in the Northeast. There are, there's, some, there's some traditional everyday mixed in in the Midwest with the hybrid. So those are the three different buckets. You've got the coast with heavy uh, virtual. The South and into the Rockies, you've got heavy in-person, and then you've got in the Midwest and in the Northeast, a lot of hybrid.
0: Yeah, that's a re- really interesting, and it brings up a couple, you know, points that you we've kind of dealt with more anecdotally than than anything else recently. And one, you know, you mentioned, you know, the regionalization of, you know, how K to twelve learning is taking place, and one thing that it just seems like, and, and maybe you can verify this with the statistics or not, is that the political infrastructure definitely has a role to play in how you know districts and states and regions are dealing with K-12 to learning during the pandemic. Do you, do you see that at all? Statistically? Yes, so,
1: absolutely. So in the three buckets that we have, the only Republican-led state that's he- that's almost exclusively virtual is Maryland. All the other areas are led by Democrats. In the hard, in the in-person areas, I think you've got North Dakota, which is led by a Democrat, but for the most part, those are Republican-led states. And then you've got these hybrid areas, tend to be. I think Massachusetts has a Republican, so does Vermont, but they tend to be Democrat. So you have a heavy mix of local political leadership and local decision making, and then the big cities, and there's there's a a, a lot of uh, school district size, union size also is an indicator, but a a big indicator is the political persuasion of the governors. To be clear, in the Northeast, you have Democratic governors that are very active in trying to get students in the classroom. It's more in a hybrid format, so it's not like in Democratic places they aren't in schools, but there is a heavy political skew to it. We tend not to. You know, we, we have to just we just describe what's happening, right? Rather than lead with the political side, because I think Absolutely. that will all yep. have to change. But 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 yes, we have we've definitely noticed that.
0: Interesting. The other thing too that I like to to say is that in, in a lot of cases, school districts don't want to be the first to do something, nor do they want to be the last to do something. Do you see? Mm-hmm. In, in you've been you, you know acquiring these statistics, you know for the better part of 9 months now do you see uh, the the trending go that way that that people kind of dip their toe in the water and then follow you know perhaps what other folks are doing and make decisions based upon that so a couple of things
1: one of the ways we were able to build our data set successfully and we have a lot of customers who use our product and they kick tires against it so it's 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 fun because we're very unique nobody else has this and our customers will check us okay but similar sized dist- size districts in similar parts of the country are behaving similarly so for example in the northeast the smaller wealthier districts not all of them are wealthier but the smaller districts in the northeast tend to skew hybrid and they're getting kids in the classroom we'll talk about shutdowns in a minute in the cities they're not in the northeast similar in this and then there are places where schools are doing everything like the South is almost all in person, no matter the district size. The West, it's all virtual, no matter the district size. But we do see similar behaviors by similar sized districts in similar parts of the country. It varies regionally. As I said, a wealthy district in Virginia is going to be virtual, whereas a wealthy district in, in Florida would be in person. But there is a lot mm-hmm. of regional similarity, and it ties to local leadership and local COVID. Or really another way, it, it may be a distinction without a difference, because In democratic parts of the country, COVID mitigation strategies tend to be more hands-on and more aggressive, but it also Uh ties to COVID strategies. In terms of what we saw, so right now over half of U.S. students are only able to go to schools that are virtual. They have no option of in-person learning. So in terms of the size of the buckets, that first in-person bucket represents about one-third of the country, the Rockies and the South. The other bucket, which is the West Coast, the heavy virtual bucket, is also is actually just over one-third. Keep in mind that captures big districts like Cleveland and Chicago and Atlanta, Mm -hmm. plus those states. That's a little over one-third. A little less than one-third is that sort of muddy hybrid-ish area in the Midwest and the Northeast where there's preferred learning. That particular area has gone heavily temporarily virtual as we do this call in early January because of COVID outbreaks. We expect them to come back in Q1 because it's like learning how to swim. Once they've gotten in the water, gotten the kids in the school, they know how to jump back in and do it.
0: Mm-hmm. For districts
1: that have never been ver- never been in person, it's a much different outlook. And what that to your qu- one of the po- points is with what you say, what you asked is that for districts that have never been in person, what they are thinking about doing now is most of them are talking about just K through two or K through five coming in. They're not talking about everything. In fact, in in those regions of the country, they're not talking about high schoolers at all, and Mm. most of them aren't talking about middle schoolers. So the hard virtual areas uh, have a very – I don't know what the outlook is there for the next quarter. And These are also areas that had a whole bunch of plans to introduce in person, and it it would get postponed repeatedly due to either union negotiations or parental objections or things like that over the course Mm. of the fall. So the, the, the virtual areas are stuck. And they have been
0: for yeah. quite some time. Yeah, interesting. Now, along the lines of you know this discussion, I, I think we're beginning to see more parents becoming concerned about the the overall impact of the distance and online learning for children. But once again, you know what we hear is largely anecdotal. Are you able to pick up a vibe on this? A parent, parental engagement <clears throat> with a specific lean towards getting the children back in the classroom?
1: What we see, what can be identified, is there's been quite a bit of work done in the last two to three months on how people in virtual learning are losing learning opportunities versus in person. That there is a trade-off, and the trade-off is the worst for students that are uh, lower economic, uh, lower economic strata, and this is going to be problematic. And I think it's going to get more problematic as the year goes on because what are you going to do with large, large groups of students that just haven't learned virtually. So we are absolutely, the. I would say the educational establishment started sort of identifying and yelling about that, as it were, or testing against that in October. And so you know it, it when it became clear that some of these districts were never going to get kids back in, at least not in the first half of the year. So that is definitely an institutional concern for the whole educational establishment that we can tell. In terms of parents, there was a, there's there, there's we see remarkably little organized activism to open schools among parents where they're closed. I, I would that's that's a qualitative judgment. It's a little far afield for what we specialize in. Uh But but you think, you know, there are protests and the protests don't have tens of thousands of parents at them, you know, and and they, you know, I have to kind of delve deep into Twitter to see some of this stuff, like the actual protest pictures and things like that. But there's not a lot of that. Maryland just had something yesterday. We were quoted in the Baltimore Sun. And the next day, the same reporter ran a story about a a group claiming to represent 10,000 parents that is demanded that schools start to open for all the reasons you indicate. So I'm sort of answering it in two ways. One, there's absolutely, three ways, absolutely an issue. Two, I would say anecdotally, there's absolutely concern. But the question is, is it being organized in such a way where they're trying to affect change? We don't see a lot of that. I will say anecdotally, we kind of hear what you do, which is that that there's a whole bunch of parents that are upset about this. But the strictures, you know, there's not really a structure in place. That, that there's not a lot of activism going on from what we can see. So it's, it is this kind of weird situation. And then from news reports in big cities, it's a little bit of the opposite in terms of momentum. Like when New York opened their schools, over half the parents refused to send their kids to school. So in, in cities, there's a real aversion to sending kids because of fears of COVID. So I would say I'm sort of with you in spirit that there has to be a lot of concern out there, but we're not really seeing it manifest itself in places like California and Oregon and Washington that have been closed for so long.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. And, and Dennis, uh, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. This has been great great th- discussion. Before we close, since you brought so much great information to the table, I'm sure folks would be interested in learning more about burbio where, where can they go find out more information
1: yeah so what what burbio does is we provide if you if you go into search and you type burbio b-u-r-b-i-o type burbio school tracker you will be taken to our map and our map has what america looks like and you can reach us my email is dennis at burbio.com and we, we have actually daily and or weekly reports for the entire country, It's very low cost that we provide to dozens of companies just in the last eight weeks who use the information to manage demand and manage business. And we also sort of act like consultants with our clients where they ask us the kind of questions you're asking us now about what's, what's happening out there. So uh, it's, it's, it's Burbio school tracker, type that into search or, Dennis at Burbio.com and we'll be happy to send you more
0: information. Great. Once again, our guest at NSTA, the bus stop, Dennis Roche, president of Burbio. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us and we'll have to have you on again. This has been fascinating conversation.